Welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Rice. This is the show that's all about taking your health, body, and life to that next level. I've got an amazing interview for you today. I have Christian Thibodeau, the world-renowned strength coach, back on the show. Before I get to that, I want to ask you, have you checked out our free course on getting in the best shape of your life for 2017? If you haven't, go to legendarylifepodcast.com forward slash free, that's F-R-E-E, and download the course there. On to today's episode. I had Christian on the show for episode 211, the seven most common fitness mistakes you're making and what to do about it. It was an epic two-hour episode that I think is the most downloaded episode that we've had on the show. It's certainly the most shared on Facebook. If you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend it. We'll link to that in the show notes for this episode, but 211, the seven most common fitness mistakes you're making and what to do about them. So today, Christian is back on the show and we dig a bit deeper into some personal struggles that that he's had to go through health-wise. And I also share a little bit of what I've had to go through health-wise. The reason is... I believe there's this misconception that so many people have outside the health and fitness industry when they're looking at strength coaches like Christian, when they're looking at people like me, like, oh, those guys, those those guys live and breathe health. Well, you're going to hear how Christian was doing a lot of the wrong things and how some health scares got him to change his ways. Yes, he was strong. He was athletic. He was muscular and built, but he wasn't healthy. And today it's all about like this new approach. Christian is 39. I'm 40 years old. We're more concerned with living a badass life well into our 40s, 50s, 60s, etc. And we talk today about how to do that. And Christian brings it like always. He is such a wealth of knowledge and so generous with his time. It's another long episode, but packed with important information on how you can stay in shape, badass shape that is, into your 40s, 50s, and beyond. Enough talk. Let's get to the interview with strength coach Christian Thibodeau. Christian Thibodeau, welcome back to the show, my friend. Hey, glad to be on, Deb. Yeah, and I had to interrupt you because we were having this great conversation about injuries. I was injured. I, I was I was taken out for the better part of two months because of an injury to my back. I'm fully recovered, but you were telling me this incredible story of how you've had some heart issues, some health issues, some things that you've had to overcome, but yet the perspective that most people have, including myself of you, is that you're this, you know, you're this larger than life strength coach guy, but can you talk a little bit about some of the health problems you've had and some of the the ones that stem from genetic factors? I would say that it's not extraordinary. I think it's pretty dumb of me that that's what it is kind of story is. It actually started out because we were talking about, I think, to miss time from training. And the only time I really missed a lot of time from training was about three years ago when I had a heart attack. I had to stay away from the gym for about four or five months. But that actually started like 10 years ago, probably even further along than that. 
But what happened is that 10 years ago, when I was on my honeymoon with my wife in Haruba, I got stung by, by this weird looking insect, right? And right before the end of the trip, I started to have like severe pneumonia-like symptoms. And they continued when I got home, but I still kept on training. You know how we are. I mean, we, we always go to the gym no matter what. Even if Absolutely. we feel really, really bad, we, we don't want to miss a workout. And that's actually a period I was training really, really hard because my honeymoon was two weeks, didn't train much over there, so I really want to make a good combat. So because of the physical activity, the virus actually spread to my heart. And that viral attack on my heart led to heart failure. So that led to my first heart issue. And ever since then, I've been having some cardiac problem. It took me about three years to get back to a normal heart function. So to give an idea, I could lift fairly heavy weights, but as long as I stayed under five reps. If I moved over five reps, it felt like I was running a marathon and I couldn't control my effort. So it took me about three years to get back into proper shape to train the way I like. But then what happened was my wife started doing CrossFit. So I started doing CrossFit myself just so that we can have an activity together and that was training. I also train a lot of CrossFit athletes at the time. So I figured, well, I'm gonna just try to do sport to understand it better so I can be of better help to my athletes. So I started doing the Olympic lifts every day. I was a former Olympic weightlifter, so that was the part I liked. I squatted every day, deadlifted, and do, did wads and stuff like that. Since I really hate to not be good at something, I was doing two or three wads at home, then Whoa. doing the training with my wife. And what happened is that I started to have bleeding stools. Now, that's the really dumb part of the story. Normally, when you have blood in your stools, go to a doctor, right? That's my advice. But since it happened to me a few times in the past, after a week or two, it went away. Then I, I didn't think much of it, but it just lasted, it lasted, it lasted until it's been, it lasted about four months. So I was basically losing a large amount of blood in my stools for four months. So what happened is that I lost so much blood, I didn't have enough red blood cells to carry oxygen to my heart. So that led to a heart attack. So I got into the hospital, right? They do all kinds of tests on me. They put a, a camera up my arse, a camera up my mouth, not the same camera. I also had a, swallowed a pill that took pictures of my old digestive system. I had nuclear Im imaging, I had MRI. So all kinds of tests and they didn't find anything wrong until they just checked the simplest thing, hemorrhoids. And it was, the actual problem. I had bleeding hemorrhoids, so they just took them out. Had I been to a, like a regular doctor, generalist doctor, as soon as the blood started to come out, they would have fixed the problem in a day and that would have never happened. And that actually is what forced me to stop training for about four or five months, just because it took so long to get a normal red blood cell level, get my heart functioning again. And ever since then, my endurance is a bit lower, but it, it, it's it's still like pretty normal now, but it's something, it's a bad experience in my life, yeah. Uh, but then when I was at the hospital at that time, they found that I had scarring on my kidneys. So it, it's a condition that is highly genetic, but that was probably made a lot worse by uncontrolled blood pressure. I mean, I have high blood pressure in my family, it's genetic. I was given 
blood pressure medication after my, my first visit to the hospital 10 years ago. But you know how blood pressure is. You don't feel different when you have high blood pressure or not until right. it's like very, very high. So I feel I'm, I'm, I'm cured, so I don't need these pills anymore. So I spent eight years without taking blood pressure medication, carrying more weight than I should have carried on my, on my own size, training twice a day so my, and eating tons and tons of proteins, which created tremendous stress on my kidneys and led to the condition I, and I, I now have. So it, it's really a lot of bad decision from somebody who thought it was indestructible. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm bigger than life. My performance was through the roof. So I said, well, I'm, I'm indestructible. I can do anything. And that led to my current situation. Uh, I'm now much better because I changed my eating habits obviously take my medication. My body weight is a bit lower, but not that much. Uh, and I'm, I'm carrying a lot less body fat and water year round. So I'm feeling a lot better. My, my blood pressure is perfect. Uh, my kidney function is back to normal. So that, that, that was a big scare, but it forced me to make some drastic changes in the way I eat and I train. Yeah. And what I love about that is you've continued to push forward and, and you're still in amazing shape. How old are you, Christian? Well, I like to say I'm 40 because it makes me look smart. In reality, I'm 39. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, last uh, November, I had a well, just when I turned 39, I had a photo shoot for my new website, tibarmi.com, and it was probably the best shape I ever got in. Not as massive as in some period of my life, but I was like 202 pounds, about five six percent body fat. And it's a type of physique, I, much more athletic uh, than just a bulked up looking bodybuilder. So it was the best I've looked, the best I've felt, mostly because I changed my diet completely. You, know, it, you think, most people think of me that Christian knows everything about training and uh, all that stuff. You know, I, I will say as far as, what, as, tr as far as training goes, I know a good deal. I mean, uh, I can help people with most of their problems when it comes to training. But Absolutely. when it comes to but when it comes to nutrition, I was the worst, to be honest. I mean, we, we're talking honest here. Uh, for, for years and years, I had horrible eating habits. But I was training twice a day pretty much every day. So that, that pretty much kept the fat at bay. I never really got over like 11-ish percent body fat because I was using so much fuel every day. But my, my eating was horrible, horrible. Mm. Both for I would have progressed a lot more had I eaten properly, but when I was young, it probably didn't matter that much because when you're young, can do can do pretty much everything. But but as I got older and more fragile health, then I realized how important proper nutrition is, and I changed that completely over the years. Yeah, and this is a great foundation for what we're going to talk about because I just turned forty on February second, just uh, just a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And man, and like you said, I, I've actually had some problems with uh, bleeding stools and hemorrhoids in the past, which freaked me out because I have colon cancer in my family. I've yeah. got some other health issues. I had an injury recently. I actually went to the hospital not too long ago because I, for, to the emergency room because I had a panic attack. I thought I was, I don't know, having a heart attack. It turns out mm -hmm. I was okay. But, you know, I think it's good for people to hear that. When when it's like they think maybe they're not in such great health or that other people who do well, like yourself and like me, maintaining an active lifestyle and, 
you know, relatively healthy lifestyle compared to at least most Americans. I don't know how mm-hmm. it is in Quebec, but um, pretty much the same. Pretty much the same, huh? So, but we have problems too. And what I initially wanted to talk about is, in spite of those health issues, in spite of being 40, in spite of maybe lesser than awesome genetics, like Mm -hmm. how do we get around that? I'd love to hear how you help people get in shape with that situation. I'd love to hear like how you feel about or, or what you've learned about how much genetics play into how our bodies, what our potential is to get low body fat or to build muscle. I love to hear like how you've changed too. You said you had a radical transition with how you approached nutrition. And Mm -hmm. uh, I had a health scare too, man. I mean, you know, I was, I got fat when I started, when I stopped doing jujitsu, I was, I thought I was eating pretty well. And then and uh, I figured out that I wasn't, right? And I also had some sleep problems. So I'm going to just let you take it away. So what do we know? What do we need to know about our genetics, our, our potential? And then how do we work around that with training and nutrition? Well, well the first thing I, I, would, I would like first to mention that uh, the last thing you said about you, I was doing jujitsu. And then when I stopped, you probably gained some weight. And yeah. you, that's when you realize that maybe you were not doing the things right. I, I think that as a species... We often judge how good we're doing by how we are looking. So uh, true. So, so if I'm, and I can remember that, exa- I mean, I actually had that thought to myself. I was coaching in St. Louis back then, and I was eating, as part of my quote-unquote diet, I was eating uh, 20 chicken nuggets and fries every single day. And sometimes I had like a lot more crap. And I could write a book about the crap I ate. I once gained 26 pounds in six hours. That's truthful. That That's completely honest. And I, despite eating pretty bad, I looked really, really good. So I even myself, I thought, well, what I'm doing is working. So I can understand where those people who claim, like, if it fits your macros, school of eating, I mean, uh, yeah. flexible dieting, as long as you're hitting your carb, protein, and fat numbers, it doesn't matter where they're coming from. I can understand these people because I've been the guy that was eating a bad diet but was still in pretty good shape. So I figured out the only things that matters are how many carbs, protein, and fat you're eating. Because you don't see what's going on inside your body. You only see what's going on outside. And oftentimes, just look at NFL players and how fat they get once they retire. Right. Because as, as long as they are playing football, it's, it, it's even worse in college. In college, a football player might train in some form or another for five, six hours a day. The amount of calories they're burning is staggering. So they take eating habits but their physical activity masks how much fat they or how much bad they're doing to their body. It's only when you start that excessively high amount of activity and you start training like a normal person that you see how much bad things you've done. And oftentimes you are not even seeing the crap you're putting your body through and what's going on inside your body. So trust me, it's not because you are looking good that your body will be good and hold that for a long time. Because I've come to the conclusion, especially recently as I'm getting older, and I'm looking at people 
I want to be in shape my whole life. I want to look good at 50. I want to look good at 60. I want to look good at 70. So I'm looking at people, either clients of mine or people I know from the gym or some other places that are 50, 60, 70 and are in amazing visual and functional shape. And I'm looking at commonalities they're doing. And in all of the of these cases, they normally have very good eating pattern and non-excessive exercises pattern. And I think that keeping your body as healthy as possible is what will give you the capacity to maintain progressing for a long time. I was having this discussion with one of my clients that if you keep systemic inflammation away, not just inflammation in the muscles, systemic inflammation away, and if you keep insulin sensitivity high, and if you keep an alkaline diet, then you can make progression until a very old age. Systemic inflammation, in my opinion, is the number one reason why people start to degrade physique-wise as they're getting older. Of course, you can't keep making like amazing progress until you're 80, but you can still maintain a very high percentage of your capacities up until your 60s and 70s. I had a client who improved his, his 1RM in a deadlift at 64. And at 64, he was still competing in fire fit events, winning international level competitions, improving his personal best until he was 64. Oh, and awesome. the guy had and the guy had great eating habits, great cardiovascular shape. So I think that if somebody wants to get stay lean, stay muscular, stay in good shape, and keep progressing for a long time, taking care of systemic inflammation through diet and some supplements keeping you insulin sensitive are the best thing you can do to your body. And also I believe that doing more, I don't like to call it functional training, but exercises that require speed of movement, that requires amplitude of movement, and that require resistance are keys to keeping you younger. To me, there is a difference between training to maximize strength and size and training to optimize your body as you're getting older. It goes back to two systems, the mTOR and the AMPK pathways. Now, mTOR is basically the light switch that turn on muscle growth. Right. When you turn on mTOR, you activate protein synthesis, which means that you're building more muscle. So if you want to maximize muscle growth, you want to maximize mTOR activation. Now, AMPK, on the other hand, happens mostly when you're burning lots of fuel. So it, it's great for increasing the loss of fat, mobilization of fat, keeping your heart healthy. But it can also inhibit part of the mTOR activation. That's why I don't like to do cardio like low intensity cardio and bodybuilding work in the same workout. I'd rather have two separate sessions or do them on separate days because one will inhibit the other. Now, if you want to maximize muscle growth, get maximum strength, you want to maximize mTOR activation. But mTOR also speeds up cell aging. So the more you activate mTOR to grow muscle, the more likely to if you are to eventually speed up the aging of your cells. 
When you're young, that doesn't matter. Sure, when you're sure. 35, 40, it probably doesn't matter that much either. But as you're getting older than that, you want to find a way to still get muscle growth while minimizing mTOR uh, to avoid speeding up the aging process too much. And you want to increase AMPK a bit more so that you can have the anti-aging properties of AMPK going on. I believe that, you know, you have to understand that the amount of muscle mass you carry is in part genetic, you can carry is in part genetic, which we'll talk about uh, in a few moments. Uh, but also it depends on how much stress your body can handle. Every pound of muscle you had on your body requires calories, energy, protein to be maintained. So the more muscle you have, the more protein, carbs you need just to maintain your body. So that is one stress on your body. The second is the more muscle you have, the harder your cardiovascular system must work because you constantly have to send blood to the, those tissues. So the more muscle you have, the harder your cardiovascular system works. And lastly, the more muscle you have, the more your skeletal system is challenged because it's a load you have to carry on a day-to-day -day basis, especially upper body mass. So if you want to be able to keep on adding muscle mass when you're getting older, you have to improve the efficiency of your cardiovascular system because it tends to go down the cardiovascular system as you're getting older and the less efficient your, your cardiovascular system is, the less likely your body is to allow you to keep that muscle mass on you because your body doesn't care if you look good for the beach or for the club. It only <laughs> cares if it's going to survive. Right. So right. if having all that muscle mass on you represents a stress, a risk, a danger for your survival because your cardiovascular system cannot handle it, then you're likely to dump some muscle mass as a protective measure. That's also why as you're getting older, you should try to stay leaner most of the time. Why? Because added body fat also requires effort from the cardiovascular system. Fat tissue is vascularized. Mm. And the more fat you carry on, the more stress on your cardiovascular system. When you're young and have a super healthy heart, that probably doesn't matter that much. So you can bulk up if you want to gain more muscle mass. But as you're getting older, if you have that bulking up approach and you're carrying more body fat, it's actually gonna limit how much muscle you can carry. Think about it this way. If your body, if your cardiovascular system can handle X amount of stress, well, that X amount of stress is divided between muscle and fat because they both represent a stress. The more fat you have, the less room you have to have muscle on your body that you can physically handle. So as you're getting older, as your cardiovascular system becomes less efficient, the veins, arteries are stiffer, the heart loses power. So the less fat you wanna carry, if you want to be able to add muscle mass, that is a simple uh, mathematical standpoint. So that's one of the difference when it comes to being able to build muscle or maintain muscle as getting older. You should have a dietary approach that reduce inflammation, reduce fat mass as much as possible, and training methods that are less 
activating for mTOR. So I'm talking about more explosive work, more eccentric, less work. So not emphasizing eccentric as much because eccentric is what activates mTOR the most. So hill sprints, pushing or pulling a prowler, doing the Olympic lifts, medicine ball throws, gymnastics works, all that stuff is great. To By 64 year old guy, improve his deadlift max at 64, was doing front and back levers. He, he was working toward a higher cross. We used band, but he was still working toward that. Uh, he Impressive. was still doing the Olympic. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty amazing. Not a big guy, but it was uh, pretty amazing. And, and he kept on improving his performance for a long time. And we, we did most of his leg work was prowler pushing various positions. Same thing here. I'm training with, well, at the same time as three of my friends. And one is like in his 50s. He's a former powerlifter who bench pressed 600. Now, 50% of his volume is on the prowler, either for lower body or upper body. And he's in, in great health right now. His training partner, he is in his training partner. And, and that is not a joke, I'm, I'm going to tell you. Their goal is they're going to have this event in three months where they're going to push a 300-pound prowler for 10 kilometers each. Wow. <laughs> yeah, nonstop, nonstop. That sounds brutal. Yeah, it is. But they're training the prowler for legs three days a week, one's heavy, one's slight, and one's medium. And they're doing lots of upper body work with the prowler. They're recovering great. Uh, they're improving every week. And they're like in their 50s. So everything's good so far. Yeah, just to interject there, if anybody's listening, not familiar with the prowler, it's basically like a sled and you just push it. So there's yeah. only that concentric motion. There's no there's no lowering of the weight. It's just, just pushing. Right. It, it's much like pushing your car. What I really like about the prowler is that, uh, as you mentioned, it has no eccentric. So it doesn't cause any muscle damage. So you have the... the strengthening effect because you are pushing heavy weights, but you're not getting the muscle trauma that you have from heavy squats and stuff like that. So if you want to minimize mTOR activation, like I mentioned, and age better, it's a great tool. But it can also be used for athletes who are in season. If I'm a, a football player, I can't have sore legs for four days or when I'm playing a game. So pushing the a prowler heavy or for speed during the season is the great, a great way to maintain lower body strength without negatively affecting your practice or games. Well said. And Christian, I'd love to, you mentioned so much in the past few minutes about mTOR activation and how it's great for building muscle. But as we age, it starts to also accelerate aging. Like you said, you talked about maintaining insulin sensitivity and you also talked about how important it is to have a, a highly functioning cardiovascular system to not only fuel our muscles to allow us to grow muscle, but also to keep our hearts healthy. Nothing worse than a guy who is strong, who gets winded when he walks up a flight or two yeah, stairs. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I'm very curious because I've talked a lot about aerobic exercise. And I'll tell you, Christian, I used to make fun of people who said walking was great exercise. Then Joel Jameson actually is someone who really changed my mind about that, mm -hmm. about working on aerobic conditioning and, and really getting that aerobic system. A lot of people who heard you talk about the cardiovascular system, they're thinking, oh yeah, 
high intensity interval training, anything that gets me really, really out of breath, that's my cardio, right? So I can lift weights or get really out of breath or run sprints. Mm -hmm. Or what do you have to say about how you approach improving that cardiovascular efficiency to allow for muscle mass and also for health? Well, high intensity intervals are great. I mean, they are a great tool. You can do them like on a bike, on a treadmill or jogging, or you can use kettlebells, you can use farmer's walk, you can use any implement. So basically you go, you can even strike a tire. You hit a tire hard, very hard for 30 seconds. Then you rest 30 seconds, very hard, 30 seconds, rest. Or you can use a rowing apparatus, stuff like that. So, so that is definitely a part of it. I think that people, well, we say cardio, but in reality, there is at least three different components. I call it energy systems work. There is the low intensity steady state cardio, like stuff that lasts 30, 45, 60 minutes at a fairly moderate pace. I mean, we often see that type of training as the devil when it comes to building muscle. I think that it is a mistake. It's not super effective at getting leaner. But again, remember what I said earlier, we tend to judge the efficacy of something by the effect it has on our outside appearance. So if I'm doing low intensity cardio for uh, 45 minutes a day, for example, oftentimes it won't make me look that much better. I mean, it's moderately effective at losing fat. It can actually maybe makes you flatter. In some people, it might hurt muscle growth if they do too much of it. But you don't understand that it is still a decent way to improve the health of your cardiovascular system. I'm not talking about the strength of your heart. When people think about the health of their cardiovascular system, they think, I think a strong heart that can send a lot of blood. For getting that strong heart, intervals or complexes uh, that I'm going to talk about later are more effective. But low-intensity cardio is very effective at improving the health of the vascular system. And it's part of the process. It's part of what we want to accomplish. It's good to have a very strong heart, but if your blood vessels are stiff and damaged, it won't do you any good. It might actually lead to problems. So the low intensity stuff does have its place in making you healthier. I'm not saying it's the most effective method. Maybe you only need it once a week. Maybe you only need to take long walks. I walk my dogs every single day. Well, they're pugs, so they don't really walk that fast. <laughs> to me, if I walk my pugs for an hour and a half, even if it's low intensity, it does have a benefit of improving this, the health of my vascular system. Now, after that, if I want to improve the, the function of the heart itself, you might want to go to the high intensity stuff like intervals. Personally, I, I don't really use intervals per se. When I use intervals, it's loaded intervals. So intervals on training equipment that you have a resistance on could be pushing the prowler. So we are, for example, right now uh, I'm preparing a girl for a, a physique contest. Uh, so she's often doing bouts of uh, like 30 seconds prowler pushing with 30 seconds rest. That is one of the intervals we're doing. We often do intervals on the rowing ergometer because you have resistance in your legs and back. When it's gonna be summer here, I often use medleys 
uh, of different type of carries. So for example, she will walk 50 meters with farmer's walk and also big weight in each hand walking 50 meters. Then she will sprint back to the starting line for 50 meters. Then she will take a wheelbarrow and carry that wheelbarrow over 50 meters sprint back 50 meters and then she will walk 100 meter as a recovery so the the low intensity interval is walking 100 meters and she has 200 meters of high intensity effort but it's loaded the thing is high intensity intervals are really effective to improve the function of the heart there's no question about that but they also burn a lot of glycogen and raise ampk now If all you want is to prevent aging, and if you're past 40, intervals are an amazing tool. If you're still like in your 30s, 20s, and you want to maximize muscle growth, I prefer weighted intervals, uh, like doing prowler pushing, as we mentioned, wheelbarrow walking, rowing ergometer, swinging a kettlebell, because the fact that you are overcoming a resistance actually activates mTOR. So you are getting the MPK from the cardio, quote unquote, but it's balanced out by an increase in mTOR. So it won't make you lose muscle mass. Whereas every time you do, even intervals can lead to a loss of muscle mass, especially if you are dieting down because they have the potential to jack up cortisol, which is a, a hormone that is released when you have to mobilize lots of energy. So if I'm on a fat loss diet, cortisol is high because you need to mobilize those carbs and fat for energy. And then when you're training, you're jacking up cortisol even more. And the more intensely you train, uh, the more cortisol you release. And that can actually be negative on muscle mass and hormonal health. So that's why I prefer to have intervals with added weight when it comes to changing body composition. But when it comes to... um, to cardio, if you want to call it that, you, you have the foundation low intensity work that improves the vascular system. And then you have high intensity stuff that improves heart health. One of my favorite ways to do that, if somebody likes to lift weight but hates cardio, is I like to do circuit training, but fairly heavy. So for example, in a workout, somebody could do, let's say power clean for three reps, back squat for five reps, and overhead press for five reps, and we just roll through these exercises with about 30 seconds of rest in between. So that is still fairly heavy lifting, so it has the feel of heavy lifting, but the density of the workload greatly improves the strength of the heart. It doesn't do that much for the vascular system, but it's great for the strength of the heart. Another way, to me, I think the best way to improve the strength of your heart it is probably kibi swings uh, using intervals. What Duke's, is that, Christian? What did you call it? Uh, kettlebell swings. Kettlebell swings, okay. Yeah, kibis. So kettlebell swings for, let's say, for example, 30 seconds, but not to the point where after 30 seconds you fatigue. So using a fairly light kettlebell, moderate weight, you do, like, let's say, 20 reps. Then you rest for until you are about... 60%, 70% recovered, then you could do 20 reps again. You wait until you are 60, 70% recovered. So when you are not out of breath anymore, you still feel a bit winded, but you're not out of breath. And you maintain that for as long as possible. That is likely the best system to increase cardiac strength. 
so some great examples of how to improve your heart, but also the other side, improving your cardiac efficiency, your, yeah. your vascular efficiency is so important. Right. I'm really curious, how do you recommend people train once they get up to around 40 and over? I'll tell you what I'm doing now to get back in shape after that injury. I'm doing a six day high frequency, but very low volume, four or five exercises, about three sets each. And it's working very well for me. I find that I'm having trouble with a high work capacity at the moment. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend? I will be really disappointing here because I would have recommended exactly the same thing. (laughs) Okay. I was actually... Yeah, I was having that discussion with a client of mine who is her, she's in her, her 50s and she always has these great questions and she asked, well, should I train less often because I'm getting older? No, I said, you should be training more often as you're getting older or when you are in a situation where you want to get back in shape as fast as possible. Frequency is the most important component. As you mentioned Work capacity is lowered after an injury or especially when you get older. So it can still be pretty high, but you, I find that myself, I could actually train four hours a day. Uh, like when I was in my 20s, sometimes I would train more than that. Uh, now, after an hour, an hour and 15 minutes in the gym, if I train more than that, even if it's low intensity stuff, the next day I feel like my nervous system is shot. Right, uh, And that's one thing I've noticed is that as you're getting older, work capacity does decrease a bit. It, it might be because of the aging process, could be also because as you're getting older, you have more responsibilities, more stress. And so I think the number one mistake people make when they're getting older is that they think, well, I'm older, so I'm going to train less. I'm going to train three days a week or four days a week. To me, that's the biggest mistake. I would rather have somebody who's older training six days a week, 30 minutes, then three days a week for an hour and a half, for example. That the frequency is more important for many reasons. First of all, from a strictly aging standpoint, every time you do physical activity, you release cytokines that favors body repair. So as long as the the training session is not excessively traumatizing on your body, the physical activity session might actually slow down the aging process by increasing cell repair. So so you want your dose of physical activity to be as frequent as possible to have anti-aging properties. Of course, if you're training like an Olympian or like an elite power lifters and you're basically crippling your body at every session, it will have the opposite effect because you're creating more damage than the, the potential for recovery you are releasing. But if the training session has a moderate or even low volume, you will re- get the, all the benefits of those cytokines to increase cell repair without making it harder for yourself to repair your body. So definitely that is the first reason. Uh, Second reason is the more often you train, the better you become at recovering. The image I could tell you is if you go tanning, if you go like go take, go catch some rays in your backyard, well, the more often you're exposed to the sun, the less it will have a negative impact on your skin. I'm going to give you an example. Here in Quebec, we have like three days of sun per year. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, 
So it is a typically French Canadian thing that once a year for one week, pretty much everybody who can afford it goes to Cuba or the Dominican Republic or Mexico for a week, all inclusive resort, right? That is other people do that. But in Quebec, pretty much every adult, if they can afford it, take one week off. They go to a sunny country for a week. And we sometimes we need it because of our winters. Now, last time I did that, I had about two, not last time, but two years ago, I got some nasty sunburn the first day I was there. And so the, the rest of the, the vacation was ruined. So this time when I went, I decided, well, I'm going to go to the tanning salon one week in advance, not to catch a tan, but just to get my skin used to handling the stress of the tanning light. So when I got there to the hot country, the sun was not a stress on my skin anymore. So And that, that worked. So the first day I came in, I, I spent all day on the beach and I didn't catch a sunburn. Same thing with training. The more often you train, the better your body become as at responding from to training. So if you are somebody, for example, who gets sore a lot from training, the answer is not to train less, it's to train more. The more often you train, the easier your body gets accustomed to handling the stress of training. So you will actually find yourself that you will be better and better and better at recovering from training. At first, it might create some negative impact, but over time, it's the best way to teach your body to respond positively to training. Yeah, and the other But keeping reason, the volume low, not yeah, yeah, traumatizing yeah, yourself. Well, that frequency and volume are normally on the opposite end of the spectrum. You can train a lot, or you can train often. I see it more as doing about the same amount of weekly volume, but divided into six sessions instead of three sessions, for example. But what I like about high frequency training is also you get to train each muscle more often. That has several benefits. Now, the first benefit, let's say that you are a natural trainer. You're not using artificial steroids, growth hormone, stuff like that. Even somebody's on steroids, right? You have to understand that that product artificially increase protein synthesis. Protein synthesis is what builds muscle. So it is the product that elevates protein synthesis 24-7. They could actually not train and still get some muscle growth. When you are natural, the actual training session itself represent the trigger that starts protein synthesis. You are natural, you need the training session to get protein synthesis. When you're enhanced, you don't. So the more often you use a muscle when you're natural, the more that muscle has an elevated rate of protein synthesis, the more you can make it grow. Normally when you train, protein synthesis is elevated for about 24 to 36 hours post-workout. So if I'm training six days a week, eating each muscle three times a week, for example, then each muscle is pretty much at a high level of protein synthesis for the whole week, which is the most effective way to train for a natural trainee. If you are training each muscle once a week, that muscle is anabolic or muscle building for about a day and a half. The other five days and a half, it just goes back to normal. Most people can't make gains that way uh, unless they are genetically superior. So that's another reason why you, you want more frequency of training. The last one is 
the more often you train a muscle, the better you become at recruiting that muscle. And the better you are at recruiting a muscle, the more efficient you are at making it grow when you're lifting. So for all these reasons, somebody should train more often, especially if they're getting older. But again, as you mentioned, you have to decrease the daily workload to compensate for the increase in frequency. Yeah. And I, I was just reiterating what you had said, not only in this interview, but also in your last. And uh, I took that to heart when because I was doing actually a higher frequency and high volume mm -hmm. uh, routine with gymnastic bodies. And I felt just beat down from my workout. So after our last interview, I I started playing around with frequency and actually lowered the volume. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting leaner and I'm getting mm -hmm. bigger at the same time, even though I'm coming yeah. back from an injury. Well, it's it, it's normal because hormonally speaking, you are in a better place. I Absolutely. Mean, you're not exactly a small guy. So, so, so when you're doing gymnastics work, most people don't understand that. I mean, I've done the gymnastic body routine for about six months myself. That was my only type of training for a while, and it had great results. But I'm also a heavier guy. I was like 220 at the time. Most people don't realize that elite gymnasts are about 135, 140. They look huge because they're super lean and muscular, but their body weight is actually not that heavy. If you're 200 or 220, the amount of stress – on your body from these gymnastic exercises is about twice as high as for a smaller gymnast. On top of that, your body is not yet efficient at these movements, so that represents even more stress. So for, if you're doing a high volume of work on gymnastic work, it, it's like doing a very high volume of deadlift and squats heavy. Your right. cortisol level will be through the roof. And if your cortisol level is always excessively elevated, it's almost impossible to build muscle because it's a catabolic hormone. It's also a hormone that, if it's constantly elevated, can favor fat retention and water retention. So if you manipulate hormone the right way, you're actually going to get better results. But you're probably like me. We are people who love training. We are stimulus addict. So we always want to do more. It's not that we feel that we need to do more. We like to do more. And so that we are our own worst enemies. Yeah, absolutely. But I'll tell you what. Yeah, because Christopher Summer, who's a brilliant dude, and it's mm -hmm. a great program, but he tries to work you up to five sets of everything. And yep. it was just crushing me. I was getting stronger, but I feel like also that, at least for me, I'm just speaking for myself here, but I feel like even though I didn't get injured during training, I got injured doing some stretching, believe it or not. Yeah, and yeah, uh, uh, yeah. that, yeah, we'll talk about that later if, mm -hmm. if you have any thoughts on it. But I feel like that kind of led, that set the stage for me to get injured. And right now mm -hmm. I'm liking my training a lot better and it's not as hard and it's not taking as much time away from my mm -hmm. work, which is my number one priority, legendary life. It's funny because in a way, I'm sure you kind of almost feel guilty about that because I know personally <laughs> it's a neurological thing. I mean, people have neurological dominances. Uh, some people are dopamine dominant, some acetylcholine dominant, some people are GABA or serotonin dominant. And depending on your dominance, you respond better to different type of training, but you also have different motivation to train. So some people are driven simply by results. All they care is getting better results and beating people. So they are very competitive and they only care about the bottom line. What motivates them 
is only to be the best or getting the more results. Some people thrive or are motivated by feeling like they are working harder than everybody else. So they do care about the results, but they actually care more about the pride they get into doing a very high volume of work. Some other people take pride in being able to follow a plan and being technically perfect on every element. When you train clients, it's often important to understand what is that person's motivation. Because if you have a client, for example, and his source of motivation is doing everything perfectly, like technique geeks, they have to do every movement perfect. And you as a coach have a result-driven system of progression, that person will probably quit training after a few weeks because it will be really unpleasant for that person. So you have to understand the neurological profile of a person to know what drives them and adjust the training accordingly, not only to get better results, but also to prevent catastrophes. Because if you have a client that is a stimulus addict and you are a coach who is also a stimulus addict, there's a good chance that you're going to overtrain that person. Yeah, very important. Is that the Braverman test that you're talking exactly, about? Exactly, yes. The yeah. Braverman test establishes the neurological dominance. If you're dopamine dominant, it's choline dominant. It makes recommendation about supplementation, for example. But uh, dopamine dominant people tend to be more results driven. Acetylcholine dominance seems to be more stimulus addict. They pride themselves in, in working harder than everybody else. The a mixed type or a GABA type often will pride themselves in doing everything better than everybody else. So not even results or, or amount of work, but doing everything better. Sometimes they can actually be annoying because of that, because <laughs> they, they are the people who argue every little detail. I mean, I've read that article that mentioned that your elbow should be at 42.5 degrees, but you're saying 45. Who's right? They will argue every detail because what motivates them is knowing 100% that what they're doing is the absolute best way. So oftentimes these people spend more time theorizing about training or talking about training than actually training. A lot of that on Facebook, Christian. A lot of that on Facebook. Well, actually, yes. The f Facebook is the kingdom of GABA dominant people. They love to argue. I mean, I, I, I even made a post about, I would say, a month and a half ago, how to win an internet debate. And my, <laughs> okay. answer, my answer was, you can't. Right. All, absolutely. In the history of mankind, Nobody has ever changed his opinion during an internet debate, a social media debate especially. All they want is they want to look like they're winning the fight. But the problem is that they don't realize that when people are actually reading that debate, they don't even care who's right or not because they themselves won't change their opinion. The winner is the person who looks, project the best image. If somebody always argue little points and always want to have the last word and never show any open-mindedness and is always taking it taking himself way too seriously, that makes him look desperate, that make him look like he's lacking confidence. And right off the bat, that person just ruined his image. The person who argues and shows a very open-minded approach, who gives compliment while using that compliment to say, that's great, I really love what you're saying, but if you consider that that might be a good add-on, 
basically the person who wins the online argument is the person that sounds like the one you'd like to have a beer with. Yeah, well said. And a bit of a pro tip. What about people who never, ever post on your page or comment on anything that you do until mm -hmm. there is something that rubs them the wrong way yeah. and then they don't say, hey, Ted, I love your interviews, but I disagreed with your guest. They don't say it like that. It's like they just say something negative. What about those people? The problem is, is that, that still know, GABA or is that something yeah, different? It's GABA dominant or just hassle dominant. It really depends on the person. <laughs> but honestly, I think, and you've had the same thing. You've been like a online quote unquote celebrity for a while. And I've been writing article for a long time and having my own forum. You have many of the thing is that people can either post because they want uh, like you to help them like a question of some people will post positive, positive comment but it's a fact of life when people like something they tend not to comment mm. when they hate something they are really vocal about it so that's the thing that at first really annoyed me because i'm a people pleaser i want to get along with everybody yeah so me too. The slightest negative comment I got like really hurt my feelings until I realized, well, it's probably that for every one of these bad comments, I have 1,000 people who are taking the exact opposite, but you don't take the time just to say, good job, I agree with what you said. You will only mention the things you don't agree with, and oftentimes you're really vocal in a bad way about them. So that's one thing people must realize is that the negative comments you receive, and, and that's true for us, but that's even true for uh, just the average person just doing his own thing in the gym. Many people can look at you and say, well, that person really know what he's doing. But there's only one person that will say, well, what you're doing is completely stupid. Why, why are you using rings to train? You're not going to get built like that. So that that's, might be one person for like 20 people who say, well, that, that's amazing what he's capable of doing. Like jealousy will make people vocal misunderstanding something made people really vocal because it makes themselves feel bad about themselves. And if you feel like you don't understand something, if somebody makes you feel insecure about your own training, if I'm training a completely different way than you are, it will make you question what you are doing. You won't admit it, but you deep down inside, it shakes your foundation of belief. And people protect themselves against that subconsciously by being on a defensive. So, so, true. so, so when people make you negative comments, oftentimes it's actually a compliment because you, what you said or what you did make themselves so shaken that they actually have a defensive mechanism to fight back. But that's all subconscious, of course. They don't even realize what's, what's going on. But that is what's going on. People need to feel like they know stuff, like they are correct in their beliefs. Like, for example, every time I give a seminar, and I've been around the world, so it's not even a cultural thing. It's, it's a human being thing. There's always one person at the seminar that will argue pretty much everything I say because he wants people in the crowd to be aware that he's smart. Right. In the past, I would actually argue with that person and argue and argue, and that never led to anywhere because the more I argued and proved him wrong, the more he was looking for a way to get the uh, opinion of the people back on his favor. So he would, the more he would argue. 
So when somebody does that, I just say, well, that is really smart. You can see that you really thought this through and you have lots of experience, obviously. So you learn stuff that is really applicable. It's not how I do things, but obviously you know what you're doing. But me, I do this, da, 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 da. And just the fact that I acknowledged him, he will not comment at any point in the seminar again because he has the validation he was looking for. People want other people to think they're smart, but more importantly, they want to believe themselves that they're smart. Yeah, so true. And uh, a big part of what I'm doing with this podcast, I've had a couple of neurobiologists on here talking about how these uh, unconscious biases that we all have, these uh, things that we do just to make people more aware of them. So thanks for that important tangent there. I'd like Mm -hmm. to bring it back a little bit uh, because we can do another interview sometime and talk about the Braverman and perhaps Mm -hmm. like what that means for supplementation. I know nootropics are hot and people respond differently based on their brain chemistries, but I'd love Mm -hmm. to bring it back to what you were saying about managing systemic inflammation, about maintaining insulin sensitivity Mm -hmm. And what you've done to rein in your diet, what you recommend now, what you do yourself. And and before you answer, I want to tell you, I had recently found out that my hemoglobin A1C was a little high. It was in the pre-diabetic range. And I'm not exactly a, a carb junkie, but I started reading and I read that also protein mm-hmm. jacks up your insulin levels. It also increases mTOR activation. And if I say anything and it's wrong, you can feel free to correct me later, Christian. Mm -hmm. But I started reining in my protein because at that time I wasn't training often enough to to handle the amount of protein that I was eating. And Giselle was putting in double chicken breasts in these salads that she was making. And she probably ate maybe half of one chicken breast. And then Mm -hmm. I would just eat the the other thing. And now I had her only use one chicken breast for both of us. And I I would still eat the same amount because I'm, you know, I'm just an unconscious eater a lot of the time. But but man, what what do you have to say about systemic inflammation, how we can affect it with diet and Mm -hmm. supplementation? and also maintaining insulin sensitivity so we can be healthy and maintain this great physique that we're, we're yeah. building with all this exercise that you're recommending. Well, 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 first of all, I really agree with the point you made about eating too much protein. First of all, the first step I did myself was, except for some <laughs> rare cases, uh, I actually stopped consuming any powdered protein, even around workout. I, I will take amino acids, but I don't take powder protein anymore, Interesting. Uh, except for if I'm traveling and for example, the first day, I know I'm not gonna be able to go gro- grocery shopping, so I might have a shake or two just to get some protein in, but, but at my house, under normal circumstances, I don't take any protein shakes because protein shakes are highly, highly, insulinogenic. So they do release a lot of insulin. Maybe not as much as the same amount of carbs, but it's still fairly significant. Uh, I also find protein powders to be pro-inflammatory. So that was the first step I took was actually stop taking any powdered protein. The only complete protein I take in are like solid food protein, like fish, like chicken, some red meat mostly, 
bison or um, other wild meat. But cutting out that powdered protein really made me leaner and flush a lot of excess water. And you have to remember that water retention is one of the best signs of systemic inflammation. People will say, okay, for example, typical bodybuilder, typical bodybuilder. <laughs> He looks okay. He looks bloated because he gained water. So well, that doesn't matter. It's only water. When I when I get ripped for my contest, the water will just flush away. Of course, but the fact that you were retaining half of the Pacific Ocean on your body tells me that there's something wrong. The body doesn't hold water for fun. Holding water is a defense mechanism. Mm. It's not something that your body is looking forward to. It's, uh, hey, let's carry seven more pounds on my body and stress my structures even more. That's going to be fun. It doesn't think like that, right? So, so when you are retaining excessive water, it is a sign of systemic inflammation. And it means that something is wrong with you. And instead of saying, well, it doesn't matter. It's just water. No, it is wrong. It does matter. So look for what is causing that inflammation and get rid of it. Because in the grand scheme of things, keeping your body healthier, reducing the load on your body, the stress on your body will make you progress much faster and also age better and be healthier. So that's one thing. People don't need as much protein as they think, especially if they're natural, because you, you can't even utilize that to build muscle anyway. I mean, past, I would say 0.8 grams per pound or one gram per pound at the very, very end, if you're really training hard, there's no added benefit in, in taking on more protein. You're not going to use that to build muscle. You're just going to turn that into sugar. So in glucose. So it also creates a, an overload on the digestive system. You have to understand that protein foods are acidic and you want your diet to be as alkaline as possible. So for every X amount of protein you're taking in a meal, you want at least double that in veggies, mm. especially green veggies, but any kind of veggies will do and some fruits to counterbalance the acidic nature of the protein food. And that's not enough to say, well, I'm going to eat green veggies, like a, a ton of veggies in the evening. No, you need veggies or fruits at every meal because you don't want any of the meals to be acidic. Mm -hmm. People don't understand how the acid-alkaline balance works. All right. They say, well, they point out, well, it's proven that the pH of the body, the acidity of the body never changed throughout the day. So the acid alkaline theory is, is bull crap. No, it's because you don't understand how it works. Yes, if you measure the acidity of your body, it's always pretty much the same. But that is not because there's no impact on consuming acid or alkaline foods. It's because your body is great at rebalancing itself. But we want to avoid your body working extra hard to rebalance itself. For example, if you consume a high acid load in a meal, right, and you don't have the alkaline load to compensate, your body has to use its own resources to rebalance its pH. So now in your body, you have several substances that can be used to do that. First of all, you have calcium and phosphorus. So you can actually break down bone to mobilize right. phosphorus and calcium to deacidify your body. 
uh, with women, that can lead straight to osteoporosis, right? But that can also make your bone a bit weaker and more likely to get injured. Now, you can also use glutamine. So the amino acid glutamine in a very high amount can deacidify the body. So, so if I'm eating an acid load, I can actually break down muscle tissue, which is protein, to release glutamine to deacidify the body. So I'm basically eating my muscle to reduce the acidity of my body. The last substance you can use is sodium bicarbonate that can be produced by the pancreas or by the kidneys. So it actually stresses the insulin system to produce sodium bicarbonate or it can stress the kidneys. And any way you look at it, if you don't consume alkaline food to compensate acidic food, you are mobilizing elements that cause a stress on your body. Of course, you maintain a stable pH because the body cannot function if the pH is out of whack. But it's what the body is doing to keep in balance that has a negative impact. If you constantly see that, how weird that is. Uh, if I'm over consuming protein to get more muscle, I could actually lower my muscle gain by having to break down muscle tissue to deacidify the body with glutamine. See how messed up that is. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you don't need a very high level of protein to build muscle. The, the strategy I personally use, I only have three solid meals per day, right? Sometimes I even have two, but it's, let's say, three solid meals, which are acceptable amount of protein, lots of green veggies. Normally I have three stalks of broccoli, some cucumbers, then I will have fats in there. So I will have one teaspoon of olive oil and one teaspoon of fish oil. Sometimes I also have one teaspoon of coconut oil. It really depends. And if I want carbs, normally it's going to be fruits that are low in glucose, for example, or iron fibers. So uh, berries. I actually like pineapple, even though it's high-ish in glucose because pineapple has anti-inflammatory effects. So it actually compensates. Mangoes are pretty good in fighting inflammation also. So these are good choices. I personally don't eat a lot of rice. It's just because I don't really like it. But I don't see it as a problem as long as the quantities are kept fairly low. Most people who say they don't handle carbs well, it's oftentimes because they have too much at one sitting. Right. So it, it's really... You can have, having 200 grams of carbs per day will have a totally different impact on how you look if you eat it all at once or if it's spread over four meals, for example. Because if I'm having like 200 grams of carbs at dinner, like from rice or from bread or whatever, if I don't handle carbs well, I'm going to bloat up really easily from that, causing water retention, which is a sign of inflammation, systemic inflammation, probably in the digestive system. Uh, that's why people who also are gluten sensitive will get water retention when they eat some type of carbs because it's it's a reaction to the gluten that causes inflammation, that causes water retention. So these are recommendations I make. Uh, now, as far as my dietary guidelines go, personally, I started to have really good results when I added fats in my diet. I made the same mistake that most people make when they go on a quote unquote 
quote, low carbs diet. Now, right. for me, low carbs is anything below 100 gram of carbs. I mean, it doesn't have to be ketogenic to be low carbs. But if you go lowish carbs, most people, they just lower carbs, but they don't increase their fat and they feel like crap. And since they don't have a steady energy source from their diet, because if you have no carbs or very little of it, you have very low fat and you have protein. Well, protein is not really efficiently used for energy purposes. So what happens is that you actually elevate cortisol throughout the day because you need the cortisol to mobilize energy. So that makes it really, really stressful on the body, really hard to build muscle. Now, for me, I started to feel good and perform well and look good when I added fat to my lowish carb diet. So again, three times a day, I have one teaspoon of, of uh, olive oil, one teaspoon of fish oil, and sometimes I'll have uh, coconut oil in there. Uh, I think that it's really important to have a balance of fat. A lot of people start taking fish oil and they don't notice anything. It's because you need a balance in all the types of fat, saturated, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated. So you can't just jack up the polyunsaturated like fish oil and expect drastic results. You need a balance of all the fat. So that's why I like to combine fish oil and olive oil. And since I'm eating either chicken or beef, then I do have my saturated fat in there, which you need. You do need saturated fat to keep cholesterol and, and, and testosterone high. So, and, and if I don't have red meat on a day, I'll have coconut oil to have my saturated fats in there. So you need a balance of all the fats, not just really elevate the ones that are perceived as the good ones. All fats, all fatty acids can have a positive impact as long as you're on proper balance. Yeah, so well said. I was listening to Udo Erasmus the other day <laughs> talking about that. And, uh, you know, so you're having, just so people listening can understand, so you're having your saturated fat from your beef or your chicken if you yeah, don't have don't that. Yeah, people don't understand that chicken is actually about, the, the fat in chicken, about 50% of it is saturated. So it's not like there is zero and uh, zero saturated fat in chicken. So you can have some, obviously beef is about 60, 70% of its, of its fat is saturated, but it's a better source of it. Uh, but I also eat like eggs in the morning and I always keep the yolks in there. Normally I have uh, three or four eggs in the morning. Yeah, cool. So, right, you're getting this mixture of fats and fats are super important, as you said, hormone mm -hmm. production. And you're, you're having the monounsaturated from the olive oil, your polyunsaturated omega-3s from mm -hmm. the fish oil. So is that what you recommend for like the anti-inflammatory part? Do you take any other supplements other than the fish oil to help with that? The systemic uh, inflammation? I do take high amounts of curcumin on a daily basis, oh, but it okay. has, but it has to be with piperin because it increases absorption, and curcumin has to be consumed at the same time as fat. So it is with my main meals. I personally take as much as three grams of curcumin three times a day, but that's because uh, studies have shown that high doses of curcumin actually improve kidney function, or in, in people who are at risk of kidney problems. So I went with the highest dosage recommended in studies, which was nine grams. But for most people, I would say that 500 mg of curcumin would 
piperin and fats at the same time will be really effective at lowering systemic inflammation. People who are training hard, so putting a, a high load on their body, are probably looking at taking a grams three times a day. Got it. And I, I was reading that when you just take the curcumin by itself or turmeric mm -hmm. by itself, yeah. it tends to get absorbed in the small intestine instead yeah. of affecting you more systemically. Yeah. So that's why you take the fat and the piperin, which is exactly. a, a compound to help with absorption to get it past exactly. uh, the small intestine, get it into circulation throughout your entire body. Exactly. I also like to take glutamine. Like glutamine. Yeah, you uh, said high doses of glutamine. Yeah. How many grams are we talking about and when do you take them? It depends on why I'm using it. I mean, when I, when I remember, and to me, it took me a long time to start taking glutamine for a simple reason. I was there, I was a young kid training hard when glutamine first started becoming popular. I mean, I'm pretty sure you remember that. Sure. Uh, about like 12 years ago, maybe 15, glutamine was started as the most anabolic new supplement, it was the next creatine because it's the most abundant amino acid in muscle. So you need it to build a lot of muscle. So if you really dose glutamine, you're gonna build a lot of muscle. And like most people, I started using it and saw no difference in muscle growth. Absolutely nothing, yeah. Exactly, so that's why every time I stopped taking it for about 10 years, maybe more, every time somebody would bring up glutamine, I just remember when I was a kid, it did nothing for me, but that's because I had the wrong mindset. I had the mindset of looking at what's going on on the outside of my body to judge if I'm doing something good, which as we saw earlier is a mistake. Now, glutamine in normal circumstances will not add muscle on you. I mean, it can contribute, but it's, it doesn't have that much of an impact. To me, the biggest benefits of glutamine, as I mentioned earlier, first of all, the uh, glutamine can be a buffer agent, can lower acidity from a meal. So that's one thing right off the bat. If you take glutamine, you can lower body acidity. So you, you decrease the needs to mobilize your own glutamine, break down bone, and stress the kidneys and pancreas. So if I'm taking supplemental glutamine, it's just a way of keeping my body healthier, reducing the possibility of muscle breakdown, for example. It also improves the immune system. Of course, you can't really measure that, but you have to understand that immune system is the system that is the most important in the muscle growth and muscle repair process. It's yes, hormone plays a great role in protein synthesis, but the initiation of muscle repair is by the immune system and glutamine helps keep that healthy. But really why I'm using it for is just for gut health. Oh, uh, I'm, yeah. when I, it might be from years of eating bad, but I always had really bad digestive issues and glutamine can solve that. So that's why I mentioned high doses. I take high doses, but only normally for about five to 10 days. I will take 30 grams three times a day with my meals, first to reduce the acidity of the meal, but also to help with digestive system health. So that's for five to 10 days. After that, I just take the glutamine post-workout. And it's not even to recover, it's only to reduce acidity. And it can also help with digestive system inflammation. It could be a good tool if used properly, but it's not a miracle supplement by any stretch. 
Yeah, I'll tell you, Christian, I did the same thing as you with glutamine. I started taking it, noticed zero difference when I first started taking it with muscle. And then I found it later because like you, I used to eat like a bodybuilder, although I've never really called myself that, but that's how I was training. That's how I was eating. And uh, I probably messed up my digestive health. Also, I've been on antibiotics a bunch of times mm. because I caught bugs in jujitsu. These nasty guys, man, just rolling mm. around on the mats and they're not yeah. keeping them clean. And had to take a bunch of antibiotics for different skin infections. And I, I just ruined my gut. And I mm. knew because I would get really bad gas and uh you know my farts would just really be bad and then because uh giselle was complaining about it so much i was like i tried taking a probiotic i've never really noticed that much of a difference Mm -hmm. in digestive symptoms from a probiotic or a prebiotic but when i took glutamine i noticed it it like really cleared things up and like you I, i don't take it all the time but I was taking it in the morning on an empty stomach before, but you're saying it's much better to do it with meals, especially when that meal contains a lot of protein or, or maybe you don't have enough yeah. vegetables to balance the acidity. Exactly. exactly. And then post-workout, you say, is a better way to take it. I also used it when I, w- I was um, having irritable uh, bowel syndrome, IBS, and that's the only thing that actually made a difference. Yeah, uh, same here. And the last thing that I use it with is to curb sugar cravings when I, because I, I'm using mostly a low-carb diet, higher-fat diet, and I still have – I have a sweet tooth. So if you mix heavy cream with about 20 grams of glutamine, I personally use about 120 milliliter of heavy cream, some water and 20 grams of glutamine, I drink that, it makes the craving go away pretty much instantly. Interesting. And and Christian, what about the different types of glutamine? I used a trans anilyl glutamine because I read it was better, but I'm not really sure if there's any difference. What can you tell us about the types of glutamine? At the very least, I would use the L-glutamine instead of just the glutamine itself. It's a much better form. Uh, on top of that, to be honest, I haven't read into uh, the more advanced variation that much. I couldn't really comment on that. Sorry. It's pretty rare that I don't know the answer, but at least when I don't know it, I'll let you know. Cool. No, I appreciate yeah. it. And I don't know the answer either, but I forget who I heard that from or read that, but I experimented with it. It worked, but mm-hmm. I, I can't tell if it's any different than just regular L-glutamine. Maybe there's a little difference if you take a very small amount. And since I prefer to use large doses for a short period of time, I doubt it would make a big difference. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So everybody listening, just go for the L-glutamine. Don't get too bogged down. So many details you can get bogged down in and will stop you from actually taking the action, which is what will give you the results that you're looking for. So keep that in mind. Yeah, And the same is true for training. Paralysis by analysis is a really real thing. So people who and we go back to our GABA people, often they, they need to be, have their very best. They, they will compare products for 20 days before making a choice that probably has no significant difference. They'll go on PubMed to make sure that they have at least 20 studies supporting a supplement before they use it. But the thing is that they don't make studies for all the supplements because there's no money in it, because right. pharmaceutical companies cannot market them. 
just because you don't find a study proving that a supplement works doesn't mean that it doesn't work. Yeah, and experimentation is so important. Yeah, yeah, of course. Anything else that you can think of to talk about managing systemic inflammation? We didn't really talk about insulin sensitivity. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, first of all, insulin sensitivity is highly correlated with systemic inflammation and overproduction of cortisol. So if you manage, just managing systemic inflammation will actually improve the health of your insulin system and will probably make you, well, not probably, it will make you more insulin sensitive. The less inflammation you have, the more sensitive you are to insulin. I think that it is true that being leaner makes you more insulin sensitive. But I think that it has more to do with the fact that when you're getting leaner, you are dumping a lot or you are reducing systemic inflammation. So I think that making fighting systemic inflammation is probably the best thing you can do to improve insulin sensitivity. Other than that, of course, having your good fats in there, avoiding carbs that spike insulin excessively, but you still, I found that taking carbs completely out of the diet is not the way to go. Now, I'm going to give you an example. When I did bodybuilding, I used a very low carbs approach. Basically, I had almost zero carbs for my old prep. And when I tried to carb load, when contest time came, even if I ate a lot of carbs, I could not load my muscles properly. It's like my body stopped responding properly to carbs. I just bloated it up. I think that if you get rid of carbs completely, at first, insulin sensitivity improves. It's not because, in my opinion, you're reducing carbs. It's because you probably have more good fats in your diet. But at first, insulin sensitivity improves also because you're dumping lots of water and you're dumping lots of fat. So you're becoming more sensitive, not because of the lack of carbs, but because you're giving a break to your insulin system and you are also dumping fat and water. But the more you progress on that low-carb diet, your body actually – it will become more sensitive to, to, to carbs, but it actually – overproduce insulin because it's not good at dealing with carbs because it, it doesn't see any carbs. So after a while, you kind of lose the enzymes required to handle carbs properly. So personally, I still like to keep, depending on the size of the person, but me personally, when I go low carbs, it's about 100 grams of carbs per day. I still want some carbs in there to keep my body good at tolerating them and responding to them. I just increase my fats for the for the lowered carbs. Yeah, so you're not a, a big uh, proponent of all the ketogenic diets and all all the other super well, low carb people. If your fats are high, even if your carbs are not like at less than 50 grams, you can still be in a ketogenic state. Uh, let's say that I'm training hard, right? I'm likely using about 50 grams of carbs in my training. By the way, most people grossly overestimate how many grams of carbs they are using during a workout. I mean, there is no such thing as using 200 grams of carbs in a workout, unless you're like a CrossFit athlete who trains for six hours. I mean, people grossly overestimate how many carbs you're taking. Dr. Serrano mentioned that during a workout, where you do 10 sets of 10 reps on a squat, you're using about 30 grams of carbs in that workout. 
Mm. So, so people grossly overestimated. So let's say that you are using 40, 50 grams of carbs in your workout and you're consuming 100 per day, your brain still need about 75 grams. So you are technically in a low, a very low carb state because you're using more carbs than you, you're taking in. Uh, and if your fats are much higher than your carbs, you will be in a ketogenic state as long as your carb intake is lower than what you need, not to function, but you need to fuel your workouts and brain every day. So, so you will get into that ketogenic state at 100 grams of carbs if you train hard and your fats are high enough. Mm, interesting. It might, it, I, might, it might take longer to get there. You might not establish a ketosis in two, three, four days, but if you do that without having a cheat day, uh, after a few weeks, you are likely producing a high level of ketones. That's especially if you're using MCT oil or coconut oil. So, have you experimented with uh, ketogenic diets before? Yeah, yeah. Well, when I when I did bodybuilding, that's why I did. That's why I did. I used uh, the anabolic diet by Dr. Mauro Di Pasquale, oh, but yeah. it didn't it didn't work for me for one simple reason. It was the the carb load were not restrictive enough. It's, it was basically two days of all you can eat. And me, and I, and I once gained 26 pounds in six hours. Right, I you said that. Ate, it's yeah, crazy. I ate, yeah, I once ate 24 burgers in one sitting. And that's only because I had one fries on top of that. <laughs> it was, it was the five, five, five menu items for $5 at Arby's. So I had five of them. So, so if you give me two days to eat whatever I want, I will go crazy. So to me, doing that anabolic diet never really worked because I actually gained more fat than I lost during the weekend. And it actually pains me to say it because I actually don't really like the guy. We don't get along. But when I used a diet by uh, Lyle McDonald, I actually had great results. <laughs> Lyle McDonald, yeah. yeah. I, I can mean, only imagine why you don't get along with him. He called me a chest-thumping dipshit before blocking me on Facebook. And uh, I really didn't say anything. But Lyle has some, some mental issues, although he, wow. he's a brilliant guy. The bad thing, uh, he's a GABA-dominant person. If he's a GABA-dominant person, yeah. But, but it, the thing is that, no, we actually used to be like decent friends, well, online friends back like 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Uh, actually, he was he was bouncing questions about his training to me, like about his speed skating training. And he was actually helping me getting in shape for a television appearance where I was playing a male stripper. Uh, nice. So, so we actually got along pretty well, but only when I started to have like lots of visibility to T Nation. It's probably the fact that some of my articles were edited to include supplement publicity, which were not written by me. That he, he called me a sellout and all that stuff. So I think that uh, ever since then, we and he actually like talked crap about me on his forum. I actually went on his forum and I just explained myself logically because I'm not an emotional person. So you are accusing me of this, this, and that, and I explain why it's not even possible that I'm these things. And I mentioned sometimes, well, you accuse me of like being on drugs, yet you mentioned that Charlie Francis and Dan Duchesne are your two biggest influences in training and nutrition. Well, Dan Duchesne was the first drug guru, and Charlie Francis had a lifetime ban from track and field because he was doping Ben Johnson. Right. So you're accusing me of something, but you're admiring two other people for the exact same reason. So that doesn't make sense. So actually, after that discussion, most people on this forum were taking my side. 
So uh, that obviously didn't help me in his view. So we've been, I don't care because I don't waste time arguing. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Absolutely. But anyway, that, actually that, that diet actually worked great for me because it provided precise guidelines that avoided excessive binging during those two days. As long as it pains me to say so, my best results were when I used uh, the diet by Lyle McDonald. So there, that really was hard to say. Yeah. You, can, you can edit that out. You know? What's that? You can edit that out. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, right on. And I'll even have a link. I, I don't have anything against the guy either. I've I've been used to, uh, I've known a lot of people with, uh, you know, kind of explosive emotional like slash mental issues. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I would even interview him. I don't know if he would, if he would come on or even if he would remember our exchange because we never met. It was just over Facebook. But anyway, it would, it would be a fun interview. But you know, he actually did try to commit suicide, maybe twice even. Yeah, he, he has bipolar disorder. He actually went on to write a post on Facebook to explain that he was bipolar. That he was actually he actually apologized to many people and stuff. Like, not to me, but to many people. Yeah, but he's a really smart person. But you no, know, there's definitely something that is not optimal. My mom was bipolar, so I kind of she didn't have the same sort of thing, and there wasn't the internet around. Uh, yeah. When she was around, but you know, I kind of get it. I feel bad for him, but he is a brilliant guy when it comes mm -hmm. to understanding this stuff. So yeah, it, we, we the, can, the problem the problem is that perfect. Some, the problem sometimes is that he, he is amazingly smart at looking at scientific things and just making them more complex. Mm. He, he's not great at. I think that oftentimes he will. Not make fun, but attack some people like myself, like Polican, like other guys like that for simplifying things. Right. Know, of course, when we explain something, we don't use the complete science and use scientific lingo because we're talking to the average person. I'm not talking to scientists when I explain the concept. If I wanted to, I could I could write a review of literature that would sound like two PhDs worked on it. But my crowd is the average person in the gym that need to understand why something works. They don't care if they don't understand the exact science. They need to know why it works and convince them that it works and sit and make them passionate about that thing. It's different to write. Uh, you, you wrote like a, a paper on Olympic weightlifting that was like 300 pages long. Most people on the internet, and we have statistics about that, I will not read past an article that is about 2,000 words. Mm. So, of course, if you write something that has 20,000 words, it might make you look smart. People who share the same passion about knowing the little details, GABA dominant people, will read that article because they, they like that. But most people, they won't read it. And really, the, the point of an article, the point of a seminar, the point of a podcast is not to show how smart you are. Right. The absolutely. purpose of these things is to help people being better, give them tools to improve their living. If you want to look smarter, go around, go in with people that are of the same type and do a circle jerk. But, but <laughs> it's not the same thing. And don't criticize people because they are appealing to a mass market audience. It feels sometimes that Lyle McDonald attacks everybody that has a small amount of popular success. Mm. Well, it's because he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He, everybody recognizes that he's smart, 
but his stuff appeals only to people who are like him, Gabadabadan people. So, and maybe he's pissed that people we feels are intellectual inferiors are getting more traction. It's not they are intellectually inferior. It's because they know that vulgarization is more effective than scientific lingo. Yeah, well said. And that's why I really appreciate you. I'm somewhere in the middle. I mean, I deal with people. I'm not teaching sports scientists and and that. I'm teaching people who have different careers, who have no time or patience to learn all the different jargon so they can understand how they need to lose fat and how they need to train, how they need to eat. So that's why I really appreciate you and what you do. And absolutely, man. And it's such a pleasure to, to come on, to have you on here, to just share your experience, your wisdom, all your knowledge. And Christian, last time you spoke about loaded stretching, we didn't even have time to get to it, but maybe we can have a, another in, in a short while, maybe in a a month or two. We still have genetics to talk about that. Oh yeah. We didn't even talk about it. So true. Well, I could talk to you for hours. You're just a wealth of information and you do such an amazing job at breaking things down and answering questions. And like you said, simplifying things so people can understand and go and implement it into their life. You gave so much practical information. And if you're listening right now, rewind this, go back to the part where, where coach Tib was talking about what to do for exercise, how often you should train the things to strengthen your heart, the strength training medleys, the kettlebell swings. He gave you all sorts of information. He gave you all sorts of information on nutrition. All you got to do is go back and implement it. Take some notes yeah, let us know how it works for you. But Coach Tib, let's wrap things up for now. If anyone wants to find you, they can go to tibarmy.com. That's T-H-I-B-A-R-M-Y.com. It's a beautiful yep. website. You can see you're looking awesome, ripped and pumped on uh, in those pictures. I, I wasn't even pumped, to be honest. I mean, oh, there's yeah. nothing. There's nothing I hate worse <laughs> more than taking pictures. So actually we hired like a super professional photographer that, that cost like a ton of money. And the photo shoot lasted about, I would say, 20 minutes. Oh, that's uh, awesome. That's I, I, I didn't pump. I just took up the shirt and just take some just took some picture and walked away. But uh, it was, a, uh, to be honest, a great editing job. I, I look decent, but the pictures really do me justice. But uh, it, it motivates me to get back on, on the fat loss diet again. Wow. Yeah. Well, like you, can't, you can't maintain that condition year round if you don't take anything to help you. Yeah. It's so important. That would be a great topic too. I and mean, they, they have, they, it's just like the women who look <laughs> at fitness models and they have unrealistic expectations. I mean, when you see people like, I'm not even talking about bodybuilders because it's in a different class, but if you look at even natural bodybuilders or natural fitness models, Dudes, they are not like that year round. They will look in shape. They might be like 10, 11% body fat, but they're not 5% ripped all the time. I mean, they dehydrated for those pictures. They they probably dieted for 12 weeks just for that photo shoot. So you can't look like that year round and be healthy and happy in progress. It's the process. Yeah, and the, the diuretics and the clenbuterol. Yeah. I had a firefighter tell me, he was like, oh, well, you know, I took some diuretics to do this photo shoot. They just pee all their water out. They're super, you know, there's just no water in their skin at all. And they yeah. 
they look shredded. The veins are <laughs> popping out. The muscles are striated. You can actually you can easily lose 10, 12 pounds of water, but if it if most of that water is subcutaneous, it actually looks like you just lost seven pounds of fat. So if you are like eight, seven percent body fat, it just makes you look ripped. But the problem is that it is very highly unhealthy. And I'm I'm really conscious about that because of, of my kidney issues. I mean, dehydrating yourself and high blood pressure is the worst thing you can do for health and performance. Yeah. And uh, that's that's what we're all about here at Legendary Life because there's nothing legendary about being in shape for a year or for a few months or for yeah. even a couple of years. I yeah. mean, I want to be in great shape when I'm 40 right now. I want to be yeah. in great shape when I'm 50 looking at myself or, you know, like you mentioned earlier, it's not just about how you look, but also looking at my blood chemistry and looking mm -hmm. at how everything is right. My systemic inflammation, my C-reactive protein's good and my hemoglobin A1C is good. That's what I want to be in, in 10 years, in 20 years. And I know you want to be that way too. And that's what everybody I, I, listening I want, I want wants to, to be. I want, I want to be Mr. Retirement, retirement Home in 2040. <laughs> uh, the first bodybuilding contest among uh, retirement uh, people. So that's, that's my objective. But I, I've known many people who are main, uh, Dr. Tim Hall, big shout out to him who I, I, close to 60 looks better than most people who are 35 not because he's huge but because he has great muscle belly great health great skin and, and very lean body so so it is totally possible to keep improving the way you look and function as long as you keep your body as healthy as possible yeah and on that let's end this we could talk all day and we will definitely mm. have you back Coach Tib, thank you so much. And remember, if you're listening right now, make sure you go to tibarmy.com to check out what Coach Christian Thibodeau has going on. T-H-I-B-Army.com. Christian, always a pleasure, my friend, and can't wait till our next yeah, interview. Great. All right, of course. Thank you. What an incredible interview. Another incredible interview with Coach Christian Thibodeau. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you check out his website at tibarmy.com. That's T-H-I-B-A-R-M-Y.com. He's got a wealth of information on there, a bunch of videos, a bunch of training information. And I'm not going to do too big of a, a takeaway section right now. But what I will ask you is ask yourself is what you're doing sustainable? Are you maintaining health or building health? Or are you taking it away? Because for me, I was taking it away with all my jujitsu training, all my strength training. I looked great. I was ripped. I was built. Everybody thought I looked great, but I felt awful. I was getting poor sleep. I wasn't eating enough. I felt terrible. My joints were achy. And it wasn't sustainable. And now I'm on this idea of sustainable fitness. Why? Because who cares if you're in badass shape for six months or one year or even three years or whatever? How about 10 years? I'm 40. I want to be in badass shape when I'm 50. I want to be doing things that I can't do now when I'm 50. That's my goal. And I want you to have the same goal as well. And you can do it as long as you're smart, learning from guys like Coach Christian Thibodeau. So again, Hope you enjoyed the interview and make sure you go to legendarylightpodcast.com, download 
the free course on how to get into the best shape of your life where I go into nutrition, sleep, and training, and more, legendarylightpodcast.com slash F-R-E-E, free. Go there, download it, and let me know what you think of the course, and let me know what else you would like in the course. Feel free to give me some feedback and let me know because so much I can share with you. I'll only share the right things if you tell me what you want to learn. That's how I've got. Hope you enjoyed this and speak to you soon. Thank you.